Welcome to the AWB COVID-19 Employer Resources Series. Today, AWB President Chris Johnson gets the latest on the coronavirus outbreak's impact to businesses. With comments from Director of Commerce Lisa Brown, Jeremy Field with the U.S. Small Business Administration, Dan Zietlin with the Employment Security Department, Cheryl McGrath with the Washington Small Business Development Center, Dr. Kathy Lofi with the Department of Health, Dean Hillary Godwin with the UW School of Public Health, and Maggie Leland with Labor and Industries. Coronavirus continues to spread in communities throughout the state and nation. Policies and recommendations are changing every day in nearly every community. This continues to be an evolving and fluid situation. To help provide you with the resources you need, we'll be hosting a set of bi-weekly webinars every Monday at this time to provide you with the most up-to-date and current information possible. Again, register for those events like you did for this one at awb.org. We're receiving questions such as, what is available right now for businesses and our employees? How can we ensure that disruptions to the supply chain, which is more critical now than ever, are kept to a minimum? And what will economic recovery look like? Those and many other questions, we'll get an early start of answering those here this morning. Today, we will have a number of our partners joining us who will give a five-minute overview of what their organizations are working on, specifically in Washington, and then we will head straight into Q&A. When asking a question, please indicate which speaker you're asking the question for, and this will help us to try to get through all the questions as fast as possible. These clearly are uncertain times, and we're in this together. Uh, AWB is here to be a resource for you. We have an outstanding landing page on COVID-19. Simply just go to awb.org and you can stay up to tune with the latest information, tools, and resources for you, your employees, and your community. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the webinar, we have unprecedented demand for this webinar and other webinars. 1,200 plus of you have joined uh, this call, many of you joining over the weekend. And we've got a great lineup of speakers today. Uh, we have Lisa Brown, the director of the Washington State Department of Commerce, Jeremy Field, the regional administrator for the U.S. Small Business Administration, Dan Zietling with Employment Security Department, Cheryl McGrath with the Small Business Development Center, Dr. Kathy Lofi, the state health officer for Washington, Dean Hillary Godwin of the University of Washington School of Public Health, Maggie Leland with the Department of L&I. So before we get started with the program, in just a moment, I wanted to inform you about how you can be a part of the conversation. For those of you that are participating through your computer, in the lower right-hand corner of your screen, you'll find an opportunity to ask a question there. Again, please type in who your question is for and what your question is, and we will read as many of those as possible. For those that jumped on this call over the weekend, uh, you're participating by audio only. Please email any questions you may have to Jacob, J-A-C-O-B-S at awb.org. Again, Jacob. J-A-C-O-B-S at awb.org. A link to the full recording of today's webinar will be sent post-event to everyone that's registered. So with that, let's get started. Speakers, you all have five minutes to share an update on what your agency and organization is working on. And then again, we will save Q&A for the end. And a reminder, please identify who you're asking your question for. With that, our first speaker is from the Department of Commerce, Director Lisa Brown. Uh, before I turn the audio over to uh, Director Brown, I want to thank her for her tireless work over the last week. We've been on the phone with her and her agency and her staff uh, countless times. So, Director Brown, let me turn it over to you. 
Well, let me come back to them. I know Jeremy Fields, you're on the call. Uh, Jeremy is the regional administrator for the Small Business Administration. We'll kind of go out of order here, Jeremy, but if you can get us started here, and we'll come back to Director Brown after you. That sounds great. Can you hear me, Chris? We can. Thank you. Excellent. So the Small Business Administration has a unique role right now with the coronavirus outbreak. We're being asked to do something that the agency has never done before, and that is handle a disaster uh, that's related to a pandemic. And typically, our loan, the disaster loans that we do, we're really good at handling that kind of workload, but we've never had this kind of historic workload before. So uh, I'll just give you an idea. The first day that California came online, we had over 700,000 applications uh, for small businesses applying for disaster loans just in the state of California. And so what we're seeing is, uh, you know, obviously a huge demand for our products, and Congress is responding to those needs. Uh, there's a lot that's being discussed right now as to how we can address um, this crisis. Uh, there are small businesses out there that are really struggling. They need help to keep uh, afloat while this phenomenon plays out. And none of us know exactly how long it will take. So currently, this is our setup. Disaster loans cap out at $2 million. You can apply online. If you go to sda.gov slash disaster, uh, you can follow the hot links to be able to apply online for these loans. Uh, currently, I think the, the, our, our um, the denial rate is actually really low. People that are applying have uh, you know, decent credit scores and are able to apply for these funds. Uh, typically, when you apply for a disaster loan, it takes three weeks three weeks to hear back if you've been approved or not with the kind of load that we're dealing with right now, and another week after that to actually receive the funds. So Congress, uh, knowing that uh, some businesses, I mean, for example, there's a business here in Boise, Idaho, they handle the um, anesthesia for several of the hospitals here in town. They have 135 employees. They're very well paid. Uh, you know, a million-dollar loan would get them through 10 days. And so we are really working hard to try to figure out how to beef up these programs. And I should say it's like Congress says. Uh, Senator Marco Rubio, who's the chairman of the Senate Small Business Committee, and uh, Senator Collins and several others have proposed a, a lot of things. And, uh, for example, we have a... In our, in our normal loan package, uh, if you want to apply for a line of credit, uh, that caps out at $350,000. Well, Senator Rubio's proposed lift or raising that cap to a million dollars. They are proposing forgiving any loans that are given to help keep people on payroll in a small business while the, this, uh, this phenomenon plays out. There's a lot of different things. Lowering interest rates, waiving our application fees, there's a lot out there right now, and we anticipate that this week is when things will start getting passed, and we'll see action uh, from Congress uh, as in passing bills and, and the president signing those into, into law. So a lot's happening right now. I, what you need to do is you need to follow us online. Uh, we are posting all of our updates. Uh, if you want to get them via email, you can go to sba.gov forward slash updates. And if you want to follow us on Twitter, we are uh, S at SBA Pacific NW Northwest. You can also just follow the entire agency general, generally at sba.gov. So 
or SBA Gov on, on Twitter. But these are the ways that you guys will get uh, up-to-date uh, information from us as, as things change, as loan packages change. Uh, I can tell you that I, I this is a personal crisis for everyone. I've had family members and friends contacting me, asking me how to apply for these loans. We take our role very seriously right now, and uh, the people at the SBA are dedicated public servants to helping small businesses be successful. And as we uh, kind of go through this process of ramping up in a way we've never ramped up before, uh, don't be surprised if you have, if you call in and need a question with your application, it can take a long time. I, we heard from one gentleman over the weekend that he waited over five and a half hours on the phone. That was maybe the worst story, but uh, sometimes just anticipate that if, as you reach out to our Office of Disaster Assistance, that they are extremely busy, and we are working on ways to help them and make that easier. We've been training up. Uh, last week, we had a training for all of SBA field staff, as well as all of our resource partners, the Small Business Development Centers, the Women's Business Centers the Veteran Business Outreach Centers, and our sport chapters. They've been, we've been training them and sharing information with them so they can help people apply online. So if you can't get through with the Office of Disaster Assistance, call your local small business development center, and they can help you walk through the process. They can help you get your loans together. If you're a small business that isn't as sophisticated in some of your finances, like my good friend was telling me about her finances that she keeps in the shoebox, don't be afraid to reach out. It's a free service at these resource partners, the Small Business Development Centers, the Veterans Business Outreach Centers, the Women's Business Centers, and our support chapters. They can help you put together that package. And if you're a small business that has bad credit, uh, that's you know below 560, that's going to be a hard thing when you're applying for a disaster loan. There are ways that you can raise your credit score quickly. Reach out to one of our micro lenders who specialize in helping people improve their credit. At and, and that they can do that in a lot of different ways, but it, a lot of the lowest hanging fruit is just contesting some of the uh, charges that have been on your credit that, that don't reflect, um, you know, how, what kind of business that you do and how good of a, 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 how well you pay your debts. So uh, we have a lot of resources. We're ramping up. Congress is responding. The White House is responding. And we anticipate this week even having more flexibility and more beefed up programs to help small businesses in this crisis. And, and that's everything for now, Chris, and I'll be happy to answer questions uh, when that time comes. Well, Jeremy, thank you for joining us. There's already a long list of questions coming in, so we'll, we'll be back to you after we're through the speakers. I think we now have Director Brown with us. Uh, Director Brown, again, I want to thank you for you and your department's work over this entire effort. We've been in close contact with you and your team. Let me turn it over to you to say a few words. Uh, thanks, Chris. I'll keep this, this quick because I know people want to get to their questions. And I know there are a lot of places to get reliable information, but I'm going to add one more, uh, coronavirus.wa.gov. And uh, the reason that is important is because it is updated regularly whenever there are new executive orders, and I know that is of particular interest to business. Uh, clearly, there have been a whole series of those executive orders, and given uh, the situation, there may be more. And so I just want to commend people to that particular site, coronavirus.wa.gov. It also has 
healthcare information and specific information for businesses. Uh, here at the Department of Commerce, the role that we are playing at this point is in the emergency response framework. We are helping to create an economic analysis of what's happening, and that is both at the state level and by sector. We work with uh, industry sectors such as aerospace and maritime and tech, and uh, clearly this is an unprecedented uh, economic challenge for uh, those sectors as well as businesses large and small in every corner of our state. The other role that commerce plays is to help uh, coordinate the information about what is available at the federal level, what is available at the state level, and we also help to formulate with you and other partners what our agenda is that we are asking for specifically uh, at the federal level, at the state level, both with respect to policy and budget initiatives. And then as we uh, hopefully move past as quickly as possible the spike in infections to a place where more activity can return to normal, commerce will be in a lead role in our economic recovery work, uh, partnering with the Employment Security Department and others. And we look forward to, to that day when we can um, move more towards conversations around returning to normal business activities and economic stimulus and recovery. We're putting those plans in place right now with you and others and thank you for taking this leadership role and uh, I or someone from Commerce will stick around to ask questions later in the webinar. Director Brown, appreciate all your hard work. Dan with Employment Security, are, are you on the line? If not, we'll move to Cheryl McGrath with the Small Business Development Center. Cheryl, are you with us? Hear me? I can hear you. You can hear me. Okay, let me share my webcam. Good morning, and thank you very, very much for making this wonderful resource available for our communities throughout Washington State. Um, I'm with the Small Business Development Center here in Washington. I'm located in Spokane. Uh, we've got 25 locations statewide. Some are operating uh, via video conferencing due to COVID-19, but over the last couple of weeks, um, and particularly in the last week, we've had many, many questions coming from small businesses. And what people are wanting to know is what can they do right now? What can they do today? So we have put together some resources for business survival strategies. I am just going to kind of power through them and hope, you know, open up for questions at the end of this call. But we've got some webinars coming up that will go into more depth with these um, survival strategies. But uh, these are really highlighting the emergent immediate needs of our businesses. And one is how do I reduce expenses. What we are uh, proposing and advising our clients is to objectively assess minimum staffing needs and make the appropriate reductions in personnel and hours worked. Cash controls. Eliminate any expenses that are not absolutely essential to business survival. Stop buying inventory unless you can sell it with a quick turnaround. 
Leases. Contact your landlords immediately to discuss reduced rent or rent abatement in which you suspend payments now and they're added to the end of your lease. Any changes that you make would definitely uh, need to be documented, documented in the lease amendment. Loans. Talk with anybody that you are borrowing from about the possibility of a loan deferral or contract extension. A deferral will have a balloon payment at the end and an extension will extend the term of the loan. Look at your debt loan or debt load and see if it's possible to restructure your debt to decrease payments. Vendor contracts and payments. Talk with your suppliers immediately about whether you can delay payments or other ways that you might be able to reduce costs. Utility costs. Some utility company, companies are offering COVID-19 related fee reductions. Go to their website and call to find out what relief is possible. And with taxes, seek emergency relief from both state and federal government, the Washington State Department of Revenue, and the IRS. The other big question uh, was cash infusion strategies. Jeremy addressed the, um, the SBA idle disaster assistance loans. We here at the SBDC are providing confidential, no cost, one-on-one -on -one advising to help our clients be ready to get those loans, to be bankable, to be bank ready. Uh, we're looking at also traditional SBA loans, express loans and lines of credit. Alternative lenders, there are multiple alternative lenders out there that can help with ca cash infusion. Personal loans, we say proceed with extreme caution and same day loans, we don't recommend. Um, also check with business interruption and continuity insurance, uh, contact your insurance broker to see what your policy provides. Accounts receivable. Collect any and all outstanding accounts receivable, but try, try, try to preserve the most important thing, which is your client customer relationships for future business, because this will pass. Inventory control, take a full inventory and secure as much as possible. Anything that's perishable uh, and can't be sold could be donated and listed as charitable income or contribution for taxes. And then last, look at new markets. Does your business uh, have any way to move products or services online? Or does this current environment any, uh, offer any opportunities for new revenue streams? The goal is to improve overall cash flow, to preserve cash in the bank, and extend the business's ability to survive. Most importantly, communicate. Talk to your employees, talk to your customers, talk to your lenders and your landlord, and talk to your industry colleagues because we're all in this together and what we focus on expands. Therefore, let's focus on the positivity, the collaboration and the collective excellence that we can all bring. Thank you, Cheryl. We'll be back to questions for you here momentarily. Dan with ESD, are you with us, Dan? Can you hear me now, Chris? I can hear you, Dan, take it away. Excellent, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to speak to this important group, and I hope everyone is staying safe and healthy during this unprecedented crisis we're in. Um, again, my name is Dan Zeitlin. I'm the policy director at ESD. Uh, the Employment Security Department, as you know, runs the Unemployment Insurance Program and the Paid Family Medical Leave Program, among others. I'm joined by my colleagues, Mariana Hernandez and April Munson, who will help answer any uh, UI and Q 
PFML questions you might have. Um, I want to note for this group the link for all of uh, ESD's important information, including resources for business. That is esd.wa.gov backslash newsroom backslash COVID-19. Ton of great information on there. Uh, highly encourage uh, all of you to take a look. As you all know, we have seen a really historic influx of UI claims uh, during the week of March 8th to 14th. The last week for which we have uh, publicly available data, we saw over 14,000 new claims for unemployment benefits. Our weekly numbers come out on Thursday, and I anticipate that this week's numbers uh, may surpass the highest claim filings we've had for a week, including any week during the Great Recession. We've also had a huge number of shared work applications uh, come in, a 500% increase over normal volumes from week to week. Uh, tremendous amount of hits on our website, tremendous amount of calls to our claim center. Um, so again, we're just really um, overwhelmed uh, by the number of UI claims coming in. Um, as you all know, to be eligible for UI, you have to have worked for 680 hours in your base year. Um, there are coverage exemptions, so the self-employed and independent contractors are not covered. Uh, UI is a partial wage replacement. And as you all know, most employers pay an experience rated tax, while others, namely nonprofits, pay on a reimbursable basis. So um, when the crisis hit or was, was coming, uh, we tried to think of ways that we could um, use the UI program more flexibly, not as the first option for folks, but as uh, a last resort after paid sick leave and other options have been uh, exhausted to get wage support if needed. And we put out a set of emergency rules a couple weeks ago um, with a real eye toward addressing the direct impacts of COVID-19. And of course, a lot has happened since two weeks ago. Um, but those rules provide UI benefits for workers and relief of benefit charges in situations in which an employer needs to curtail or shut down operations um, because a worker becomes sick and other workers need to be isolated or quarantined as a result of COVID-19. The rules also provide that if a worker follows guidance issued by a medical or public health official to isolate or quarantine themselves as a result of exposure to COVID-19 and is not receiving paid sick leave, uh, they may be eligible for unemployment benefits. Uh, one important thing we did in the rule, we removed the requirement, uh, the full-time requirement uh, for standby and allowed part-time and less than full-time workers who are isolated to apply for standby again, uh, to apply for standby. Um, I believe, as most of you know, standby is a program whereby uh, workers can collect unemployment benefits without having to do job search so long as there is a return to work uh, expectation or date with the um, employer. Uh, that way, uh, uh, the worker and uh, worker can stay attached to that employer. We've since expanded the amount of time a worker can be on standby to up to 12 weeks. And I should note that because um, part-time workers were previously not eligible for standby, our IT systems automatically generate denial letters for those workers. And so we've had a challenge of uh, getting the word out to those workers that uh, those letters are auto-generated. We're trying to correct the problem, but that we'll be in touch to, to process their claims. So I didn't want to flag that for this group. 
Um, the new rules also have leniency with regard to both workers and employers. They allow uh, current unemployment claimants who are in isolation or quarantine more leniency with regard to their EY deadlines and mandatory appointments. And for employers, it waives financial penalties for employers who file their tax reports late, pay their taxes late, or do not respond to information requests in a timely fashion as a result of COVID-19. Now, again, we put these rules in place uh, a couple weeks ago, and and since then, obviously, the situation has evolved tremendously. Um, the impacts of the economy are uh, being felt, and, and at this point, uh, like some of the previous speakers, we're really looking at the federal level um, to see and are advocating for certain actions um, in the phase three bill that Congress is currently uh, debating. Um, a key challenge that we face is, as I said at the top, uh, UI coverage uh, only goes so far, and um, we're not able to provide uh, coverage to certain exempt uh, individuals, such as self-employed and independent contractors. When there is a disaster, that void is usually filled by something called disaster unemployment assistance. So this is individual assistance provided when there are physical disasters, like the Oso landslide in 2014. So uh, uh, the president declares a major disaster, this individual assistance is unlocked, and we're able to provide that disaster unemployment assistance to cover those workers not covered by um, general UI. And this is uh, coverage provided by the uh, feds or paid for by the feds. Uh, Governor Inslee did request and the president yesterday declared uh, coronavirus a major disaster for Washington, but has not yet made disaster unemployment assistance available. Um, I think this is in part because this is a big part of what's being negotiated in the uh, federal bill. And out of that legislation, uh, what we might see is, again, that coverage for people who are not normally eligible for UI. Uh, there looks to be a real effort to um, add to weekly payments amount, payment amounts up to $600 so that this partial wage replacement becomes something closer to making uh, workers whole. There uh, is discussion about more funding for shared work. There is discussion about a national or nationwide trigger for extended unemployment compensation for an additional 13 weeks, which would take the maximum weeks allowable for UI from 26 to 39. Um, there's discussion about some relief for reimbursable employers. All of these provisions would be uh, federally funded. So uh, again, we're really looking to see what the feds do next as it will have a, a big impact on uh, the number of uh, folks we'll be able to, uh, to serve. And again, these are just uh, unprecedented times for us like the other agencies, both in terms of the number of UI claims we have coming in and should Congress pass these sorts of provisions, it's gonna be a big uh, implementation uh, challenge for us. So um, look, we're encouraging, we're, we wanna serve everybody as quickly as we can. We're encouraging patience and just an acknowledgement that we're all in this together and we'll get out of it together. Um, so. Um, look forward to answering any questions you have about UI or paid family medical leave or, or anything else. And, and this is a long-term issue and, and we really want to make sure uh, we partner well with uh, both business and workers to get through it. Thank you. Thank you, Dan, for joining us. Uh, for those that are participating via the conference call, we please ask that you mute uh, your calls. There's a tremendous amount of feedback for those that are participating via phone. 
We're also receiving a high volume of questions and we hope to get through as many of those as possible. A friendly reminder, please designate who your question is for uh, as we go through those. Again, thank you, Dan, for, for joining us. Next up is Dr. Kathy Luffley. She is the State Health Officer for Washington State Department of Health. Dr. Luffley, let me turn it over to you. Well, good morning, everyone, um, and it's a pleasure to be here with you this morning. I'm going to really quickly go through some updates from the health perspective. I'll try to make these really quick. Um, so first of all, as you guys are all hearing in the news, our case counts do continue to grow here in Washington. Um, uh, this is partly due to the fact that the number of tests we are performing has increased. We all, we've always known that there's a lot more disease out there um, than we've been able to detect through testing. Um, but we are increasing our testing capacity, although it is still considered limited um, at this time. Um, we initially had, a, you know, significant activity in the Puget Sound area, as you know, um, and now we are seeing, um, you know, increasing activity outside of the Puget Sound area. We have detected COVID-19 in most of the counties um, here in Washington um, to date. Um, quick message for the businesses that are remaining open, um, it's critical that you practice social distancing um, of your employees. Um, uh, and, and that essentially means really um, setting up processes uh, so that your employees can say, stay about six feet apart um, during the day. It's also important that you do sort of, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, frequent environmental cleaning. Um, if you're, um, uh, if your businesses are open and you cannot, for whatever reason, um, have your uh, employees telecommute. Um, our hospitals are filling up. Uh, social distancing is really the only tool we have right now to be able to slow the spread of this virus. Um, we don't want to be the next Italy. Um, and so we are doing everything we can um, to uh, decrease spread, slow it down. Um, so next, I wanted to talk just briefly about um, ill workers. Um, so we have three documents on our website that are all very helpful. Um, one is what to do if you have confirmed uh, coronavirus disease, what to do if you are potentially exposed to someone with coronavirus disease, and what to do if you just have a fever and or a cough um, but really haven't been around anyone. Um, so basically, we are recommending that people with fever or cough, um, you know, uh, particularly if that they are increased risk um, for complications from COVID-19, that includes being greater than 60, 60 years old, having chronic medical conditions, or being pregnant, we do ask that you call your provider's office right away um, to be evaluated. Those other people who are not at high risk, um, who have mild symptoms, do not necessarily need to be evaluated or tested, um, but definitely call your doctor if you're concerned. There are some new online tools um, that are on our website where people with symptoms can go um, to do an online self-assessment. Um, there is a tool that's been de designed by Providence, and if you answer questions in a certain way um, and they're concerned about your health, you, this will lead you into a telemedicine visit um, and potentially testing. Um, so uh, that online tool is very helpful for anybody you have um, who may be sick. Um, and unfortunately, testing is still limited, but, you know, we are continuing to work on that. So um, have your sick employees uh, use this Providence online tool. Um, if you have somebody who is sick, you, they need to really immediately be sent home from work. Um, and your employees should all know that even if they have the mildest symptoms, they really should not be coming to work. Um, and you can refer them to the ab above resources. Um, whether or not somebody gets tested or, and confirmed to have COVID-19, they do need to stay home for work for at least seven days. 
and at least three days after their fever has resolved without using any fever-reducing medications and their symptoms have significantly improved. So whichever of those time periods are longer, um, minimum is seven days, but if they're still sick at day seven, they need to wait at least uh, three days after their fever has resolved and their symptoms have significantly improved. And then they need to continue to practice really good hand hygiene um, during, uh, you know, the time that they start, um, you know, coming back to work um, if, uh, if they um, are allowed to uh, work at the work site. Um, Couple other things, if you have an employee who has been confirmed to have COVID-19, the first thing you should do is contact your local health department. They will help you with a contact investigation, which means trying to identify people within the workplace um, who may have had close contact with this individual. We are still recommending that close contacts of cases stay at home for two weeks and be in quarantine. Um, and then um, the, your local health department will also recommend that you do some environmental cleaning. And the CDC has a great document um, for disinfecting uh, your uh, facility if somebody in it has been sick. Um, and I'm not going to go into the details, but, um, you know, there's a nice page. Uh, if you go to the CDC coronavirus website, click on business, you will see uh, a document around environmental cleaning. Thanks. Thank you, Dr. Loppy, for joining us this morning. Staying with the uh, healthcare theme, next up is Dean Hillary Godwin at the University of Washington School of Public Health. Dean Godwin, take it away. Ah, okay, great. Um, thanks a lot for having me here today. Um, I wanted to follow up on some of the things that um, Kathy said, Dr. Loffy, and, um, and also um, provide a little bit of context about what's going on at the University of Washington in terms of responding to um, this uh, outbreak. So uh, first, um, I just wanted to thank all of the folks who are running businesses in our state. Um, I know this is a, un these are uncertain times and it is difficult, um, but we appreciate um, the work that you are doing to maintain supply chains and make sure that basic services are available. Um, of course, using the precautions that um, Dr. Lofi uh, described. Um, so, and in these times, I guess I just would put out a plea to everyone to realize that it, uh, uncertainty is in general difficult for people. Um, and so it's important to take care of yourselves and uh, the people around you. Um, we at the University of Washington, like all of you, have been scrambling to keep up with um, the pace of change that we're all faced with and make decisions with incomplete information um, and, and certainly sympathize with um, what all of you are going through. In terms of um, some insights that are coming out of the University of Washington and services, um, the most obvious ones probably are the ones from our medical system. Um, the University of Washington medical system obviously um, is a key resource for the community in terms of providing medical care, as Dr. Lofi said, the reason that we are engaging in the social distancing activities is so that we can um, try and keep the number of cases that require um, significant um, medical care or hospitalization below the carrying capacity of our medical system. Um, and important for a couple of reasons. So although, you know, probably 80% of people who 
become infected with the virus um, will have mild or moderate symptoms. Um, there are those 20% who are going to need some really intensive care, and our ability to make sure that they have good outcomes or the best outcomes possible um, is really dependent upon us having the capacity in our healthcare system um, to provide them with good care. It's also really important in terms of all the other emergency medical uh, care that people rely on um, on a daily basis, whether it's someone who has a heart attack or some uh, trauma case. Um, we need to make sure that we have that capacity to be able to help those people as well. So um, for all those reasons, the social distancing is really critical, um, and it is really important to um, continue communicating out to your workers um, about um, the recommendations that Dr. Lofi spoke about. I just wanted to give a shout out to um, both our, our state health department. Um, you can find great resources at DOH. .wa.gov, and also our amazing uh, local health department, um, Public Health Seattle and King County, um, here in Seattle. Um, they're kingcounty.gov. If you go to the main site for either DOH or for kingcounty.gov, uh, it will take you to those critical uh, COVID-19 resources. Um, we're just incredibly fortunate in this state to have really outstanding public health folks who have done an amazing job over the preceding weeks helping us to flatten the curve um, and hopefully um, make sure that that peak stays below um, what we're able to deal with. The University of Washington has also been heavily involved in, in um, testing and been ramping up testing over the last couple of weeks. Um, hopefully you guys saw today in the Seattle Times um, that uh, UW Medicine um, is partnering with um, Public Health Seattle King County um, to start at home testing. Those, um, those are not ones where you get an immediate response, but rather where a test kit is delivered to you at home, then picked up, and then you get the results online. Um, that's courtesy of an ongoing study called the Seattle Flu Study that has really helped inform um, what has been going on so far, and also researchers from that same group um, has been doing a lot of really important modeling studies um, to help provide guidance for policymakers um, to give us a sense of what's to come and what types of interventions um, could give us um, the best outcome. So uh, again, just really cannot speak highly enough of our local government here who's worked hand in hand with public health and also disease modeling experts to make sure that the decisions that they're making are based upon the best um, public health information that we have for our region. Um, in terms of what that modeling is showing us, um, one thing that's important to keep in mind is that um, if we are successful in flattening the curve, um, which we all hope that we are, um, because it ensures the best outcomes for the largest number of people in our community, um, it does mean this is gonna be a long haul. The, the flattening of the curve necessarily pushes it out in time. Um, we do have a do expect to have a total number of people infected, and certainly the total number of fatalities associated with the disease to be lower, um, significantly lower if the curve is um, flattened. But it also does mean that the amount of time that we're going to be dealing with this is longer. So um, it's worth keeping in mind that this is a long haul, and uh, the modeling also shows us that. Um, letting up on some of these social distancing interventions too early 
um, can cause a rebound in another peak in cases. So it's important to stay the course. Um, and, uh, and we are all in this together. Um, we're blessed in Washington State with just an incredible sense of community. And we are leveraging that to um, try and create the best possible outcomes for each other. I should say also, uh, University of Washington scientists are also involved in the first um, uh, vaccine trial for COVID-19 um, in the United States. And so um, as we push out that curve, we're hoping that, um, that vaccines and therapeutics will come um, uh, become available over time um, so that um, the folks who don't get infected um, this round, um, hopefully we'll have um, good protection in the future. So I'll stop with that. Thanks. Well, thank you, Dean Godwin. Uh, we have one more speaker before we get to your questions. Maggie Leland is with the Department of Labor and Industries. Maggie, are you on the call and available? All right. Maggie, so I think you might be muted. There you go. Thank you. Okay, so I'm Maggie Leland with the Department of Labor and Industries, and we are involved in the COVID response primarily in three of our programs. The first is our industrial insurance program, where we administer workers' compensation claims. And the primary questions we're getting is who's covered and under what conditions. The, the other way in which we're involved um, in COVID response is around paid sick leave. So we administer the state's wage and hour laws. And so in that regard, we help with um, providing advice on when workers can use paid sick leave and what are their rights associated with that. The third way in which we're involved with COVID response is around occupational health and safety laws. And in that area is where we're helping businesses and employees understand how to stop the spread of COVID in workplaces and keep workers safe. What resources do we have available? We have information on our webpage. If you go to um, lni.wa.gov, we have a banner on the front and the second um, carousel in it is a link that will take you to our COVID uh, page. And there we have resources about um, all of our programs. And we also have links to other um, resources such as um, Department of Health and CDC and OSHA. For workers' compensation, there was an announcement um, earlier this month that we're changing our policy related to certain types of workers that are eligible for um, claims for the types of um, infectious diseases as we're seeing like COVID. And in particular, the press release focused on first responders and healthcare workers. However, it applies to uh, that same set of factors would apply to any worker that meets the criteria. It's not occupational specific, but the worker would have to meet the criteria. And in um, the change in policy was specific to allow for coverage, workers' compensation coverage, when um, a worker has an on-the-job on, on exposure. Primarily, we're talking about healthcare workers and first responders. And then due to that exposure, they've been ordered to quarantine. And in, so in those cases, we will cover the quarantine period, whether they get the disease or not. And then of course, if they do get the disease, they are um, eligible for workers' compensation. And so the three questions criteria that's involved in whether a claim can be accepted for COVID is, was there an increased risk or greater likelihood of contracting the condition due to the worker's occupation? 
So that is why we focus on first responders and on healthcare workers, but there could be other circumstances and those are handled on a case-by-case -case basis. And the second criteria question is, if not for the job, would the worker have been exposed to the virus or contracted the condition? And then the third question is, can the worker identify a specific source or event during the performance of their employment that resulted in the exposure? And so that's the criteria that we're looking at for all claims. And again, that applies regardless of occupation. And so there is coverage for certain times where the worker has an exposure and then they are ordered to quarantine because of that exposure. Uh, other things around workers' comp that we're looking at are some changes around how claims are filed because as we know, um, normally for workers' compensation, we require medical documentation. A worker needs to go to the ER or to a doctor or to a clinic to have that claim initiated. And so we're taking a bit of a different response around COVID because we know that sending workers to um, the urgent care right now just to document this, ex this um, exposure is not helping the cause. So we're looking at uh, variability around medical documentation in this case and the ability to initiate claims. We're working on um, and have information on our website around telehealth and um, telerehab. So in cases where we still want to be able to get care to those workers, that have claims that are not COVID related, that we wanna make sure that we're doing what we can to get them the services they need and not further put burden on our healthcare systems through in-person businesses and not then further have exposures to those um, already um, injured or sick workers. We're also working on employer assistance around payment of premiums. So there are opportunities if employers are having um, financial difficulties that they can get um, opportunities for um, 90 days, same as cash premium payment. And in those cases, they would um, be able to have the late penalties and interest waive if they're making the payments in the first 90 days. So for those employers that are interested in this, I suggest you call your claims manager and that can help you. We're also looking at um, the situation around how these claims will, will be affecting rates. So normally when there's a claim, it affects an employer's rates and we understand this is a unique situation. So we're stepping back and taking a look at that. We don't have any information right now, but we are looking at um, those issues and concerns. As far as paid sick leave goes, we've um, provided some guidance around when and a person can you a worker can use paid sick leave in the situations of COVID-19. So they have an opportunity to use paid sick leave um, for the first three days of any absence. And in those cases, an employer does not um, have the right to ask for medical documentation after three days, three consecutive days of absences. Then an employer can ask for medical documentation. In cases of COVID-19, we are encouraging employers to heed the guidance of the CDC and the um, Washington State Department of Health and the experts that we've heard today talk about the fact that really medical documentation in these situations can put extra burdens on the health care system and also um, needlessly expose others that are in the healthcare situation to a person 
with COVID. So we ask that employers really be um, not take an aggressive stance on requesting medical documentation. Um, the, one of the main issues that we're focused on um, around this is around COVID is that the right to take paid sick leave is an employee's right. An employer cannot force someone who is not working to take paid sick leave. They can, however, um, they don't have to provide payment if that person isn't otherwise already doing work, such as if they're telecommuting, they're working from home, if they're performing work, then that is not a situation where sick leave would apply. There are also situations where um, the because there are places of work that are closed by order of the governor, those are opportunities where if the worker is not otherwise working, they have a right to use paid sick leave um, under that circumstance, whether they're sick or not. Um, they can also use paid sick leave if their child's school has been closed by order of a public official. So in those cases, em employees would also have an opportunity to use paid sick leave. The main other area in which we're um, focusing on and working on providing guidance is around the intersection with the new paid sick leave that was provided under the Federal Families First Coronavirus Response Act. That is separate in addition to state paid sick leave, and um, we are figuring out how they intersect. So we'll be providing guidance on that. Um, even though this new sick leave is provided under the federal law, it doesn't change the obligations to ensure employees continue to accrue paid sick leave as required by the Washington State um, paid sick leave laws. And, and workers can choose to, you, to use um, paid sick leave before they use the paid sick leave under the federal law, or they can choose to use the paid sick leave under the federal law first. The federal law is um, limited to COVID-related circumstances and expires um, at the end of the year. So that's a new development as we've all talked about, things are changing rap quite rapidly. And the last er primary area in which we're involved in COVID response is around occupational health and safety. And so we have um, guidance available on our website. We've issued a hazard alert and we've referenced OSHA's um, guidance for preparing the workplaces for COVID-19 that talks about um, specific things employers can do around requiring social distancing, around requiring um, that the areas be cleaned, and um, having a policy and procedure in place to identify workers that are sick. So we'll leave it with that. Thank you, Maggie, for that update. Uh, and thank you to all the speakers that have joined us. We have an overflowing amount of questions. So as we get to the question and answer round, I'm gonna ask our speakers to kind of do this in 30 seconds or less if they can, longer answer if needed, but to try to get through as many questions as possible. And for those on the phone, I know this has probably been a complicated process. There's some echoing going on, someone put their hold music on. Uh, we apologize for that. Uh, we'll make that different, hopefully, on the next call that we do in this regard. But thank you for being flexible with us. And for those that couldn't hear what was happening, again, there's an audio link that will be sent out to each and every one of you after this call is completed today. So if you've not typed in your question, please do so in the right-hand corner of the box if you're participating via computer. For those that are on the audio, remember to send an email to jacob, J-A-C-O-B-S, at awb.org. All right, we're going to try to go through as many of these questions as possible. Jeremy Field, be ready. The first question's coming for you. 
It's from a gentleman named John Chen. He said, I've completed the SBA loan and other forms, but haven't received any funds. When can I expect to receive the funds? Jeremy? Yeah, so right now, our typical wait time is three, uh, three weeks for the approval. I'm glad you've been approved so quickly. And it takes a week after approval to receive the funds. 30 seconds or less. You, uh, another question from Sarah Richards. Can disaster loans be used for more than current operating expenses? Some small businesses are already highly leveraged and can't add another loan onto their books. So loan consolidations would be very helpful. Is that possible? Sounds like two questions there, Jeremy. Yeah, we, that's a question. Okay, everyone, just so you know, my email is jeremy.field at sba.gov. And we have a, when we get really uh, kind of the nitty gritty with the loans, send me an email and I'll get you to one of our lender relations specialists so that we can get you the answers. So. Jeremy, J-E-R-E-M-Y dot F-I-E-L-D at S-B-A dot gov. That's where you need to send me a question like that, and then I'll make sure you get the right answer. Jeremy, thank you for that. Next is the Department of Commerce, and a, and a number of questions here. I believe, Chris Green, you are on the phone. Uh, let me break it up to the first question here. As a city council member, I've received a message from local employers who want to be declared an essential business. So if this situation becomes an only essential businesses, how can they still perform their services? So a number of questions, Chris, regarding are we on the path to essential businesses being opened? If so, what's the process look like to be deemed an essential business? Can you take a few, a few seconds at responding to that question? Yeah, this is uh, Chris. Hope you can hear me. Um, uh, you, you all know the governor is doing lots of evaluation there, so I'll have to defer any you know forthcoming announcements to him. I, I don't have an update on on that. If you are a business in that situation, what we are advising people to do is go to the emergency management division website, and we can give that information out. There is a there is a business reentry registration portal. If you're a business that wants to get on the list, you can submit that. Uh, and several businesses have done that. The last time I checked, about 70 businesses had already done that. That list uh, is for folks to consider if and when there is an order around shelter in place. It doesn't mean there has been one, but it is for consideration. So that's what we are advising businesses to do currently. Uh, if interested, the other note, and I think um, Chris Johnson, I said this to you recently, Homeland Security at the federal level has guidance around what are essential businesses and so that can be shared too that is a reference only it doesn't mean that anybody at the state level adheres to that but those are two places i can look and one or that you can look and one action you can take to register your own business chris could you share that either the website or domain name for those that are interested in being on this business reentry registration list is there a best place to go to access that and then go through the process yeah, I'm, I'm looking I'm looking to access. I will type it into the message here and send it to you uh, in just a few seconds. But uh, yes, I will share that in just a second. Staying with you, there's a question regarding uh, are there tax credits or other resources from the Department of Commerce that could be helpful to Washington State employers during this uncertain time, either strategic reserve fund or, or others? Sure. Uh, we are working on one specific program that is a grant program for small businesses. Uh, the governor mentioned this, I think, on Friday or late last week. 
Uh, there's uh, up to $5 million in what is called our Strategic Reserve Account or the Working Washington Fund. Uh, and we're in the process of getting some rules made to get that money out the door. That would be targeted at uh, a variety of small businesses and the rules aren't finalized yet. Uh, and uh, because of the way the money works and the law works for this particular bucket of funds, we'll be working with ADOs uh, or associate development organizations, some of you call them economic development councils, uh, to facilitate application uh, and sending of money out. So we'll have that ready shortly. Uh, once the governor signs the budget to, uh, those will be available. So that's the one that we have. We're working on a variety of other things. Of course, you heard Jeremy from SBA. Thank you to SBA. We're also advocating to EDA and other parts of the federal government for increased resources around small business assistance. And so I don't have news on those yet, but those are continuing discussions to continue the advocacy there. I want to thank you for all your hard work over the last weeks, too. Thank you very much. Dan, I have a couple questions for you as it relates to ESD. The first one up is from Ashley. She asks, if I file for unemployment, will, uh, will I try to, uh, what impact will this have on my ability to get a loan to buy into a practice? I don't think it would have any impact on that. Uh, Mariana, am I missing anything? Uh, no, Dan. thing with you, maybe here's another one for you. Is ESD considering relaxing restrictions on unemployment slash standby benefits for exempt employees, specifically that an exempt employee not work for an entire work in order to be el eligible for UI that week? The context is that my company is considering exempt employees to work partial weeks. Mariana, can you speak to our current rules around exempt employees and then I can comment from there? Uh, can you guys hear me? Yes. Oh, okay, thank you. Um, so for unemployment purposes and exempt employees, um, anybody that has a work search requirement, so I'm not sure I may be fully understanding the, the question, but um, anybody who who is not exempt from work, uh, from work searches, such as uh, attached uh, to a union um, or training, um, full-time, part-time employees can go ahead and apply for standby. Um, if you have somebody that is salary, who usually, if that's the exemption that you're talking about, um, they would still be eligible for standby. Uh, if they are working um, part of the week, uh, they would just have to make sure that they report the hours and earnings that they're um, that they would be earning for that particular week that they're filing for, uh, but standby would still be applicable. If they are working full time, so if they're working their normal 40 hours, they wouldn't be eligible for standby because they're considered fully employed. Next question comes to us from Gretchen. It says, regarding the governor's new regulations on unemployment, do you know if there are benefits for church workers Currently, our church is about 50 employees, and we do not pay into unemployment. Yeah, currently, as I stated, there's... Oh, go ahead, Martin. I was just going to say that um, for churches, um, you, it would have to be covered employment um, in order for unemployment benefits to kick in. So if, you, if you're not paying into unemployment for your workers, the likelihood of them qualifying for an unemployment claim is they wouldn't be eligible because they wouldn't have sufficient hours unless they work for a different employer um, to qualify for unemployment benefits. 
and I don't know if you want to add more to that. Yeah, and as I mentioned before, the federal bill that's being contemplated uh, would, is, the purpose is to extend coverage to all those who are not otherwise qualified for UI. So the hope is that that would capture those folks. And if not, we would look at options. Thank you, ESD. The next set of questions are for Dr. Luffy. All right, we're going to go next to uh, Dean Hillary Godwin. Uh, for, the U for the UW Public Health Director, what do you consider long haul and are we taking middle of April as discussed before, or are we talking less than six months, more than six months? This person has an entertainment business and getting an SBA loan would be dependent upon long haul. Your thoughts on that, Dean Godwin? Yeah, <clears throat> so that's a great question. Um, so with the modeling that we, so modeling studies, um, are used use parameters <clears throat> that we have both for um, the, how the virus has behaved in other countries that where, where the epidemic is farther along, and also some parameters that are dependent upon our behaviors here. Um, and both of those have uncertainties associated with them. Um, so, um, but that being said, I would say the greatest part of the uncertainty that we have is dependent upon um, how people here behave. Um, and so that's part of why we're pushing so hard for, for um, these various different physical distancing practices. Um, my understanding is that the Institute for Disease Modeling um, is projecting that they will have um, results sometime this week. Um, that they will share through Public Health Seattle King County um, to give us a sense of whether or not we have been successful in flattening the curve here locally. Um, so I would keep an eye out for for uh, news releases about that and certainly expect them to be informing um, decisions that are being made both at the local and state level. Um, that being said, um, so we, uh, people probably know at the University of Washington are, have decided to take um, our classes online for the entire spring quarter. Um, and that is due um, in part to um, the modeling studies that suggest um, that this is, that it's not just when the peak hits, but that we have to ride out the wave of that peak. Um, and so that that's going to take us far, definitely farther out than the middle of April would be my guess. So. Very much, Dean Godwin. All right, a uh, number of questions here for ESD and LNI. I guess I'll, I'm going to open it up to uh, both of you to respond to that. Maybe I'll start with the ESD. Uh, first question is, what is the process for employers to request relief from benefit charges, and is that generally available during a crisis? All right, so I can speak to that. So the rules that we put in place allow for relief of benefit charges um, if you are an employer who needed to shut down or temporarily curtail operations because of COVID-19 in the workplace and um, you therefore needed to quarantine your employees, so we're deeming that a catastrophic event, much like a fire would be. Um, otherwise, I would just say 
and uh, unless Mariana knows, I might have to get back to you on the uh, process for requesting uh, relief of benefit charges. Um, but I can say that this is a um, obviously a large issue. Um, the state, um, the legislature passed uh, a bill creating a fund to help pay down relief of benefit charges. And I think it's an issue that's going to have to be looked at broadly. I would just remind folks that we don't, as you all know, don't set our experience rated taxes. Don't set those rates until January with those taxes due in April 2021. So just want folks to keep that in mind. Um, as far as the logistics of requesting such relief, uh, Chris, I will, along with other questions I'm sure we'll be responding to, we'll respond to that one uh, in writing so you can get it out to folks. The next question is for standby status, what is the process to request extension beyond eight weeks if the employer is unable to restore hours by the date initially intended? I can take that, Dan. So we've, um, okay, go ahead, Mariana. Um, I was just going to uh, make a correction. So we recently um, uh, we recently changed our rule to allow standby for up to 12 weeks from both the claimant and the employer side. So either the claimant or the employer can request up to 12 weeks of standby. If you find yourself that you have to extend beyond the 12 weeks, there is a particular process that we are um, asking employers to follow. And it's actually also in our Q&As on our uh, website, which we will go ahead and um, send that information back out to you after this call. Uh, so employers know where to visit um, to get that information. But that additional request would have to be done in writing to our department, and we are taking a look at um, all of those um, that are coming in. Uh, the next question is, if an employee has child support taken out of their check and they go on unemployment, do you know if or how child support payments will be made? So if an employee um, currently has child support, um, our agency would receive that same information um, from the child uh, child support agency as well. So unemployment benefits do deduct uh, for child support purposes as well. Maggie, I think these next two questions are for you. The first one is asked, if employees were laid off, are they eligible to request use of their paid sick leave hours? So if, if I understand the question right, is if employees are laid off, meaning the um, employee relationship is terminated at that point, then they would not have the right to use their accrued paid sick leave upon termination of, of employment. The employer would be obligated to keep those hours um, because there's a certain amount of hours that they would need to add back up to 40 hours um, upon rehiring that worker in the next year. So if you're terminating that employee and that employee would then be eligible for unemployment if they were if they met the criteria, then in that case, there would not be a, an obligation to pay paid sick leave. However, if you are just suspending operations um, in and out, then, um, then they would have an opportunity to use paid sick leave. Peggy, uh, there's a question here for coverage eligibility. Who orders the quarantine? An employer, a physician? Can a person self-quarantine? So for the most part, we've been applying that it needs to be by a physician or an order of public health. 
So I am not exactly sure around some of the healthcare workers where they are following the criteria that CDC has outlined. Um, they have prescriptive criteria where if um, treating a patient um, who's positive or suspect um, COVID-19 and then you are uh, depending on what PPE you're doing and what type of which is what type of personal protective equipment you're having and what type of um, operation or activity you're performing around that patient. There are CDC guidelines about when that person needs to be removed from work for 14 days. So I'm, I don't know whether that is being applied. That's usually in hospitals and there's physicians there administering those programs. So that's what I know right now is that we are looking to to um, in order if someone is self, um, they're deciding either because their employers ask them to go home and quarantine or they're self-quarantining, then I'm if that would be accepted. Uh, this next question has come up a number of times. I'll just try to frame it that says, uh, employers hold HIP information very seriously. What type of information can we share with our employees if one of them has been confirmed with COVID-19 and may have come into contact with that employee? So I can only tell you about the laws that LNI administers. And so within LNI's laws, we do have a requirement in our paid sick leave laws that employers keep um, information around um, medical information confidential. There are requirements as well, depending on the type of employer under federal um, HIPAA laws, and there are also laws around um, with the American with Disability laws, uh, which is a federal law as well, administered by the Equal Employment um, Opportunity Commission. And uh, I recommend that employers check with those areas. This is one where Kathy uh, Lofi, maybe Dr. Lofi, may be able to help as well about how if there's been a confirmed case, um, if there's interaction with those people that have worked close to that person and the notification that goes on through the Department of Health and the local departments of health. Uh, unfortunately, we've, we've lost Dr. Lofi, but we'll get that question to her. Next question is probably LNI and ESD, uh, as a commission sales representative who's seen my commission revenue drop 33%, what resources are available to me or my customers who are also finding themselves in similar situations? Can you repeat that? Yeah, the question is if, if you are a sales professional who rely on commissions for your income and commissions and sales are fall, falling 33 plus percent, what resources are available to them as a sales professional and other professionals like them? So I would say, and Mariana can chime in here for ESD and unemployment insurance. Um, it really is on a case by case basis that in particular a case like this that we'd want to um, look at eligibility uh, for UI, whether that be under current the current UI program or should Congress enact legislation, uh, disaster unemployment assistance. Mariana, do you have anything to add to that? No, Dan, um, 
we would have to take a look at the eligibility with what we currently have in rule. Dean Godwin, if you're still with us, a question for you is, how can we know what the actual infection rate is without widespread testing? What is the current status of, uh, of Washington's numbers as it relates to widespread testing? And what's our actual exposure rate? And have we hit the peak or not hit the peak? Yeah, so um, the person who asked that question is correct. It's, a, it's hard to know what the total number of individuals in the state of Washington who um, have had uh, COVID-19 who, uh, who would turn up positive would be um, because we are have to this time predominantly been testing people who are symptomatic. And so we miss all those cases um, of folks who um, are um, either asymptomatic or have very mild or moderate symptoms and are not getting tested. Um, so what uh, the, one of the best resources that I've seen is the virology department at the University of Washington um, has actually been posting, and actually I think the, the Seattle Times had a, a piece on this yesterday as well um, with a graph showing the percent of cases um, of the testing that's been done, what percent are coming up positive, and it's still hovering around 10%. Um, the implication of that is that uh, the majority of people who are experiencing um, flu-like or COVID-like symptoms um, right now do not have COVID. Um, they have either flu or some other respiratory pathogen. Um, so that's something that we're keeping an eye on. Um, we would love for it to stay like that. We still need people to stay home and not infect others, even if they just have the flu. Um, because that also can be deadly, and we're trying to minimize the spread of all of these and the impact on our healthcare system. Um, what was the last part of the question? Sorry, can you repeat that? Over the, do you think we're over the curve is the last part? Have we peaked and maybe gone down? No. <laughs> I wish we were, but no. Um, I'm fairly confident that we have not hit the peak of the the curve yet based upon the trajectory that we're seeing in terms of um, number of cases. Um, so um, we're not quite sure when that's going to hit. Um, but um, like I said, keep your eyes posted in the news for um, more information coming out of the Institute for Disease Modeling. We should know more in the next week or two. But that is why they're asking people to hunker down at this point um, is because um, we really would like to, to keep that peak as low as possible, but we're not there yet. Uh, thank you very much, Dean. Uh, this is for L&I. It comes from Scott. What health insurance can employees get if they're laid off? Uh, their company only insures full-time employees. So that's um, health insurance if you're laid off is not a question that L&I administers. Um, if they have a workers' compensation claim, then the insurance for coverage for medical and time loss benefits for a worker compensation claim continue as long as you're meeting the criteria for coverage under that claim, even if the work relationship has been terminated. But if there is eligibility for COBRA or greater health insurance issues, that is not something LNI administers. Thank you. For Maggie, this comes from Shauna, can employers opt to pay out sick leave to terminated or laid off employees 
rather than reactivating their, their hours if rehired. So there's provisions in our rule related to that. If you are, um, you can have elect to pay out the benefits if it is um, dollar for dollar. If you look at our rules, um, I'm actually gonna suggest you look at our rules, which are under WAC chapter 296128, because I don't wanna say something wrong. Um, but they do have provisions around um, being able to um, buy sick leave at the end of the period. Great, thank you. Well, we, we have hit our time block here today. Our speakers all have uh, hard stops here in a few minutes. I, I wanna thank each and every one of them for joining us. A, a reminder that this is a series of webinars that we'll be doing every two weeks, if not sooner. Uh, for those that are on the call again, our apologies, we will have a, a bigger system for the next time that we get together. A reminder that uh, this complete uh, webinar was audio covered. We will be sending that link of all information out to each and every one of you here shortly. Uh, for those that ask for specific resources, our team will be pointing you with the right speakers that engage with today. Again, I also want to thank Kaiser Permanente for sponsoring this. They've helped make these calls be possible, uh, and they're really important and needed calls. Our, our next call is tentatively set for two weeks from today. Uh, I suspect we may be needing to come together before then, but please uh, pay attention to the COVID landing page at awb.org. Uh, that has the most current, up-to-date, and timely information. Uh, Congress is moving on a, on a major federal relief package, as Jeremy Fields just spoke about. It includes another set of, of funding for things like disaster loans. It has some different eligibility requirements with it than what's been approved so far. So this, this really does remain a fluid, uh, fluid environment, fluid conversation, and it's not a weekly fluid, it's a daily hour fluid environment. So I want to thank each and every one of you, the nearly 1,200 plus people who called in for today's call for joining us. I really want to thank our staff who are working really, really hard uh, to take care of each and every one of you and your questions that came up the last couple of days. Thank you for joining us. Be safe out there. We're adjourned. Thanks for listening. Our next webinar in the AWB COVID-19 Employer Resources Series is coming up April 6th. Go to awb.org for more information.